You're listening to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the Executive Director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of 1514. We're really thankful to have you here with us today. If you're watching on our Vimeo channel, thanks for doing that. If you're listening to this audio, uh, we really appreciate that. If you're brand new to the podcast, be sure to go back and check out the archive. We have uh, about 130 episodes out now, so lots of opportunity for you to listen to different interviews with various people. Uh, Today, I have a special guest with me, uh, one of my favorite authors and a longtime pastor, as well as leader in a couple different church planting slash church network movements, uh, Pastor Dave Harvey. So Dave, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Curtis. Great to be with you. So for those who haven't had a chance to meet you or read your work, uh, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what your current ministry roles are? Sure. Yeah. Well, so um, let's see. I'm the husband of Kim. We've been married for 37 years. We celebrated 37 years this past August. Um, We have four children and four grandchildren, and they're all up and out of the house. And so we've got, we live down in Southwest Florida and three of them are down in our area. And then one is up in Philadelphia. So we're grateful that we get to see at least three of them fairly regularly. Uh, on the ministry side, I'm I'm the president of Great Commission Collective. That, that's a church planting network that plants churches uh, here in the United States, in North America, up in Canada, and then abroad as well. Uh, and I serve on the CCEF board also, and I've been doing that for maybe 10 years now. And I I write when I have an opportunity to do so. So that's kind of a small snapshot of my life. Yeah, well, we really, I really appreciate your ministry. Like I said before, we're going to talk today about your your most recent book, I Still Do, uh, which we'll get into in a minute. But one of my favorites that I recommend to people all the time is Rescuing Ambition, uh, especially talking to new pastors or people considering ministry or leaders in the ministry. I think it's a very helpful, helpful book. So thanks for writing uh, on a multitude of different, different things. Thank you. Uh, I mentioned today that we're talking about I Still Do, which if if you're familiar with Dave's writing before, you may recognize the title, When Sinners Say I Do. And this is kind of a, a follow-up to that book. Could you summarize the thesis of, uh, of kind of catch everybody up? What was, the, what was When Sinners Say I Do about, and where does I Still Do pick up? Yeah. Uh, the, the the thesis, if you will, uh, of One Sinner Say I Do is kind of summarized well by one of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, who, who once said, till, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was gripped by that and began to think about how that applies to marriage. And so the goal of One Sinner Say I Do was to understand kind of how the gospel transforms marriage. And in order to do that, we have to understand the the bad news of the gospel in order to really appreciate the good news. And so there, you know, there's a feature of one sinner, sinner said I do that was about the doctrine of sin. 
so that we could truly glory in the reality of Christ's death and, and resurrection and and also what that means for daily life, what that means for our last conflict, for raising our children, for how we're do- doing life together. So that was when sinners say I do, but there was a, you know, it, it felt like there was a need for a companion volume, particularly that was written maybe 10 or 11 years ago, maybe even 12 years ago. Um, I don't remember anything prior to last week, so I don't know how long ago it was. <laughs> um, but, you know, as Kim and I got older, I think I mentioned earlier, we, you know, we celebrated our, our 37th anniversary. And over the years, honestly, there were just times where we didn't know what to do. We, we, we felt like at times we were in the middle of an important moment, but, but the path was unclear to us. And, and once we got through it, it, it was kind of like, gee, it would have been really nice to know certain mm-hmm. things sooner. And so this book was this, uh, the I Still Do was, was kind of written around that. And, uh, and, and then probably one other thing, and that is that, that as feedback began to come in on When Sinners Say I Do, it was grouped around or, or t- a typical use for it was within premarital groups mm-hmm. and then newlyweds. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes for like crisis situations in marriage. But I began to realize just in looking back in my, on my life in the counseling I've done as a pastor and doing events for marriage and talking to people afterwards, that there are moments, significant moments we confront deeper in marriage where our response to those things really determines our, our direction. And so I, I began to see for a, a companion volume, you know, something that would help people to think about how to navigate those moments towards a durable marriage, towards a marriage that would would last. Yeah, no, it's it's really uh, you can tell not that when sinners say I do was immature or anything, but that you've you've lived longer. You have a lot more life experience now and you're coming back with that wisdom and then expanding. And I, I like you mentioned, when sinners say I do is not necessarily, it doesn't seem to me like the audience, the target audience is newlyweds and premarital. It's the gospel applied to marriage can apply to anybody, but I know it's been used and it's a super helpful premarital and newlywed kind of like, Hey guys, wake up, take the rose colored glasses off. You're getting yeah. ready to, <laughs> yeah. you're entering into a loving relationship, but it's going to feel like world war three sometimes. So get ready. Um, and, and yeah, I think I was surprised that, that you know that it kind of fell into those those groups as well because I wasn't intending to write a premarital or newlywed resource. I think where it where it may have served is, a, is it's foundational stuff, and so I think that it resonated with people that were in those groups and then leaders that wanted to lay foundations in marriage yeah. would you know could use that as a resource. Yeah. And so for those of you who are listening, it's a great, it's a great resource across the board, marriage counseling wise, but uh, I do think it is helpful to lay that foundation for newlyweds. But like you mentioned in crisis counseling, if people are unfamiliar with the gospel or how that fleshes out in life, get that. But we're also talking about the follow-up book, which I think is, is not over. It's not redundant. That's one thing I love too, is it really does 
plow new ground. You're not just trying to rehash a bunch of old stuff. The, the subtitle of the book is Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. And it's a really appropriate because you structure the book, uh, the chapters around these defining moments. So could you tell our audience what, what is a defining moment and maybe give a couple examples from the book? Yeah. Um, so a, a defining moment is, is just a way to talk about life-defining experiences, events, or decisions that we need to make that determine our direction in marriage. And so I break these down into five different components. I, I, I say they, they present a decision for truth. They typically require a cost. They offer an opportunity. They're intended to grow the soul. And they, they set a course or a direction for where we go. So, so then each chapter, at the end of every chapter, and, and I still do, it ends with an exercise where there are practical questions that are asked around these, these different components. No, that's brilliant. And, that, and I love that. I, I sent you kind of jokingly, I call it the chapter, uh, chapter summary matrix, because it's a really neatly laid out um, questions to consider at the end of each chapter. It's really helpful. Um, some of the defining moments I think are pretty obvious. Most people are going to expect it, you know, when kids leave, um, saying goodbye kind of thing, but some of them I was really unexpected and was kind of surprised by. Could you share a couple, couple of examples, um, from the chapter? I mean, you could just look at the table of contents. Even. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's, I, I think there's a total of nine there. There may be, there may be 10, uh, but it's, it's, it starts with, uh, Defining moment number one is when you discover brokenness is broader than sin. And so obviously the first book, When Sinners Say I Do, was kind of seeking to help people understand the significance and implications of the doctrine of sin. But this book starts at, okay, what happens when you discover brokenness is broader than sin? And every couple to be healthy must make that discovery that it's not life isn't bifurcated between in the saint and sinner, you know, good and evil, that there's, you know, there's wisdom issues and other things that come into play that we have to understand. Uh, a second defining moment is the moment of blame. A third is the moment of weakness. Um, some of them get very practical. The moment you realize family can't replace church the moment when your spouse suffers, the moment you discover sex changes with age, um, when, when dreams disappoint, we all have these dreams of what marriage is supposed to be. Rarely do those dreams manifest uh, to, to become the thing that we dreamed about. And so it becomes a defining moment in marriage when we recognize that that dream may not be satisfied. Uh, yeah, you mentioned when the kids leave. That is, that's a huge defining moment. Yeah. Uh, when you learn closure is is overrated, and uh, and then the final one is is uh, is built around a, a, a Tolstoy story, the death of Ivan Ilyich, and that's when when grace conquers the moments you wasted. So that's the 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 general outline of of the defining moments in the book. No, that's great. 
guy who wrote it and still remembers his chapter titles. That's pretty amazing. Pretty impressive. So well done. One of the things I love about your book too, is it's, it's, you quote Tolstoy and you quote Puritans, but you also quote Jimmy Buffett. So it's pretty, (laughs) (laughs) it's a great read. uh, Really, really enjoyable. The the eminently quotable Jimmy Buffett. (laughs) He's always good for a quote. Well, you use it really aptly as well. So it's well done. Uh, uh, Generally, the book has those nine chapters, but you have them broken up into three different sections. Uh, what are those sections? Yeah, so uh, the, section one is starting together, and uh, and then the the second section is staying together, and then the final section is is ending together. So the design of the book is, <clears throat> excuse me, to to kind of pick up after year four, you know, they estimate now, it used to be a seven-year itch. Yeah. They estimate now that that a lot of divorces, if they're going to happen, they're going to happen around year four. And uh, and so part of what I wanted to do was, was I wanted to think about what, what does it take to have a marriage that's going to last and what are the moments that we face to get there so that we could ultimately end together. So I tried to I tried to anticipate from like, you know, newlywed, a little beyond newlywed, all the way through the final years, uh, the defining moments that couples would face. Yeah, no, that's, it's really helpful because I think, um, well, I was just curious when you had, when you sat down and are thinking of a target audience, are you aiming at any one age group or who, who is the target audience? Well, I think that there are some chapters um, that, that where where the target audience is more narrowly confined. So for when the kids leave, I mean that could certainly apply to you know a mom who's sending her her, her child away to kindergarten, and there's feelings that have to be resolved around that. So that there's a, these constant moments of ongoing separation as kids get older. But it's really built around you know whether whether you're building marriage uh, in such a way that you're anticipating the moment the kids leave and, and prepare to enjoy one another and, and, and celebrate the fact that they're, you know, that they're becoming adults and capable of functioning in that world. All of that to say that, so that would have been a more narrow target audience. But for instance, when, when your spouse suffers, that, that's a very broad audience. And that can be from new, newlywed to older folks who are helping each other die well. No, it's really helpful. And I think it's good to think through, I was trying to think through one, how do I apply this in my own marriage, but also two, how would I use this as a counselor? And I, th- I think, as you mentioned before, you and Kim were sitting there thinking after 37 years of marriage, man, I wish I would have known this stuff way before. And so for people who are newlyweds or early in marriage, my my wife and I are celebrating our 17th anniversary this year. So we're not quite where you are, but we're not newlyweds either. It is helpful to see that roadmap ahead and say, okay, here are some things to be on the lookout for. Um, but honestly, I thought, man, this would be a great reference to have on the shelf. So I'll, I'll read it when I get it, prepare. But when those things come back, like refresh and reread kind of a reference uh, material there. Um, you see that? I mean, you see people using it that way or think people will? I hope so. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to write from the experience of somebody who's 
who's trying to apply, which means there are there are certain times where I might talk about things I've done. There are plenty of times to talk about ways I've failed and and how I've had to encounter the gospel in that failure and uh, and 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 why that's that came alive to me and and so I, I think that the my my aim is to be able to to make a resource that's accessible to you know to everyone but will also be of use to the to the counselors as well. Yeah, I think our audience is predominantly counselors, so they're always looking for great resources to use. And this one, this one is a, a great one, uh, but man, it is personally challenging too. If you're married, you're like, oh. Man, I can <laughs> I could use that or oh man I should have my spouse read that chapter no we we never do well that. the challenge of writing it is now you're fully accountable for it and and somewhat accountable for applying all of it oh man yeah yeah be warned be warned future authors. I know oh goodness future uh, authors the, be warned <laughs> one of the chapters. Um, Cause I like to, I don't want to steal your thunder. I want people to go out and buy the books. So we're not going to talk about every, every little bit, but I wanted to dig in on a couple of chapters just to talk to people about kind of bait the hook a little bit. And obviously the one that would, which does is chapter eight, which uh, is in the sticking together section is titled when you discover sex changes with age. Why, why is that a defining moment? I know you have that five question, that five aspect paradigm for a defining moment. How does that fit into that paradigm? Well, it becomes a defining moment because we all bring expectations into marriage on what our sexual lives are going to be like. And, and those expectations, you know, part of having healthy sexuality and part of having a marriage where where, where sexuality is drawing you closer is having those expectations aligned. And, uh, and one of the things that happens is that expectations don't change over time. And so you begin moving through different seasons of life and we just don't adapt our expectation to the new season of life. I mean, life as a newlywed, when it comes to, you know, sexuality, life as newlywed is dramatically different than when you have, uh, teenagers in the home, or when you're uh, you're getting older and your 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 bodies are changing. I actually I, I start the I start the chapter by talking about a story of where I'm sitting at a Starbucks and there's a guy and and the guy must have been I mean he was at least seventy years old, maybe seventy five, and he's talking in Starbucks and he's talking to somebody else who was some kind of counselor, may have even been a pastor. But this dude is talking so loud that everyone in Starbucks can hear him. And he's talking about how his wife should feel obligated to give him sex every day. And, and this, this poor soul is like, he, he's quite passionate over the loss of his entitlements. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I mean, my, actually, I'm listening. My first thought is, man, where does this guy get his vitamins? Yeah. But but I, 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 I'm sitting there and I'm realizing, yeah, this is, you know, this is the challenge of, of sexuality is that you have expectations and, and even as you grow older, you think, you know, that sex should remain the same as it always was. And to, you know, to let go of that is to almost die to something. And so people don't want to 
adapt. But the reality is how we deal with aging becomes a defining moment. Aging with respect to sexuality becomes a defining moment and, and it can't be driven by our expectations because, because marriage, you know, one of the things marriage does is it, 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 it unites two individuals and requires them to share things like a bathroom and bank accounts and, 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 and it, it forces us into a, where we either have to find a rhythm or we're not, the, the cleaving thing is not going to happen. Yeah. So we've got to find rhythms in each and every season. And the only way to do that is to be moving, fa- facing one another, moving toward one another, communicating one another with one another, having grace for one another, recognizing changes in one another. And uh, sometimes that's not even on the radar of, of people that are growing older in their marriage. No, it's a, that's a really brilliant point. I mean, just the how you handle aging, because the reality is, is even, I mean, when it comes to your own diet, your exercise capability, your needs, sleep, all of those things change with age. And I don't think we ever, we're, we're not good at that. We're not yeah. Good, yeah. Really good at that. And then when you apply it to sex, it not only is it unrealistic. I mean, so many people start with unrealistic expectations of sex uh, now because of our hyper- sexualized hyper porn world people are not coming into marriage with right expectations and then as you age those things are gonna like yeah the chapter is brilliant at just laying out these things change they have to change yeah bodies change desires change needs change and 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 what you've built with each other outside of the sexuality is what ultimately helps the marriage endure as you grow older together. Yeah. And you talk about, you just have to have a good sense of humor in the, in this area, especially, I think. No, no question. <laughs> a touch of madness. Yes. Yes. Um, you, this chapter included a special segment at throughout called wise talk. Tell us, tell us what that is and why you included it in this chapter specifically. Well, you know, as I mentioned, each chapter ends with uh, a very practical grid that that moves the reader towards practical application. And so I really wanted that to be a, a feature of the book. But I thought I thought sexuality needed to be layered even more. And uh, and so I wanted to have a whole other realm of of practical application. Uh, with embedded within the chapter, even along the way, so that as soon as someone reads the section, then they can read some practical application or some questions to get them thinking so that they're immediately processing the material. Because this, this issue, I mean, and you just said it, particularly in our culture, in our world, it's so, uh, it, it, it's, it's so high, high powered it, it, it's so um important to people and and so i really wanted to make sure that we were working to think it through even as we're, we're reading through the chapter yeah and it's really helpful because all of these defining moments are something you can and should talk to your spouse about but in this particular area it just is more challenging for people so those wise talk, uh, oftentimes you're giving people questions to ask one another to, to spark that conversation. 
uh, which is inherently a little bit awkward. So I thought it was a really brilliant tool, really helpful applicational tool. So um, yeah, thanks for throwing those in there. Thank you. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book actually comes in this chapter, and I think it's it has a wide application, but when I thinking in this chapter specifically, it's really helpful. It says, grace reclaims the past by remembering a person's highlights real, not simply their outtakes. Can you flesh that out for everybody a little bit? And then you ground it really specifically in scripture, which I appreciate too. Uh, what, do, what do you mean by that? So, so when I, when I read through Hebrews chapter 11, um, I, and I, I think about the, uh, you know, the great hall of faith and who's being held up there. It's, it's astonishing to consider some of the people that are pulled forward from the old Testament and, and, and held up Rahab, the prostitute. She's even called not just Rahab, but Rahab, the prostitute, Samson, you know, people that had, had failed in, in significant ways. And yet there's a way that, that faith seems to look back and there's a way that grace seems to see them not for their worst moments, but for their best moments to the degree that, that, that God even kind of pulls them forward through the writer of Hebrews and fixes them in Hebrews chapter 11 and says in this area, be like them. And you're thinking, are, are you serious? You're talking about Rahab, the prostitute here. And then you, you just, you just begin to realize as you, as you ponder it. Yeah. Grace does that because of Christ, because of his death and resurrection. You know, God remembers us for our best moments. Yeah, you know, our past is, is our, our sins are, are, are put away as far as the east is from the west. And, uh, and God thinks about us that way. And then he invites us through faith and because of grace to turn and do the same. And nowhere is that more necessary than in the institution of, of marriage, because nowhere are we more vulnerable to be picky, to be critical, because we know each other so thoroughly. And one comment can, you know, can, can send our spouse reeling. We know where the buttons are. And, and so it introduces this idea that, yeah, a, a marriage that's growing in grace, a marriage that's growing in the gospel is capable of seeing each other not for their failures and mistakes, but but for their best moments. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate this about about my wife because um, you know, Curtis, I'm I'm like a I'm like a very intentional guy. And the problem with intentional people is intentional people are always towing impatience right behind them. You know, they're they're <laughs> like they're attached to each other. And so I've struggled with impatience all my life, but I don't think I can ever point to a conversation where Kim has described me as an impatient person. I, I, there's plenty of times I have to, I have to confess that to her. I have to acknowledge my sin. I've got to confess to God, repent to God. And, and that's an ongoing part of my life. But I, I realized somewhere along the way, you know what? She doesn't see me that way. And it's not because it doesn't affect her. Sometimes it affects her in a huge way. But that's not the point of reference. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something very godly, uh, very gracious about that. 
And she does that in our marriage. And I, and I began to realize, well, that's the gospel at work in her life. Grace helps her to see me in, for my best, for, for the work of God in my life. Well, amen. I mean, obviously the Lord, God looks at us through the cross and sees Jesus. But as you pointed out in Hebrews 11, lots of other places in scripture as well, uh, the focus is on who we are in Christ and the good that we're doing. And and because, man, it would be, it's so easy in any relationship to point out problems and then to focus on those. But grace really challenges us and encourages us to see the highlights. Not that we're, you know, ignoring sin and just never dealing with it. That's not the point, but really to have a strong relationship, grace is going to be front and center. And that's a really, yeah. And, 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 you know, in a, in a marriage where, where grace is that prominent and the gospel is, is that much at the center, the experience of, of helping one another, correcting admonition, you know, that, that, that's a much less hostile experience. It's, it, it can be because the goals are not, are not, you need to become like me. You know, you need to keep peace in the family. You need to make my world. The, the goals are completely changed to, you know, I, I want to see you have a more passionate relationship with Jesus. And, and so, you know, think about this because this will, this could help you. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's much different and and much more beautiful, I think. Well, I hope, I hope our audience has uh, gained an appreciation and desire to go out and get your book. Uh, I highly recommend it again. I I still do by Dave Harvey and you can check out when sinners say I do rescuing ambition others. And you have a website too, where people can find out your, your library, but other ministry opportunities that they can connect with you through. What is that? I do. Yeah. The website is revdaveharvey.com. And so there's a lot of free resources there on marriage. I'm writing a lot of stuff on marriage right now. And, uh, and the, the, the study guide to, I still do is that we're recording this right now in, in March and the study guide is going to be released in April. And then there's a 31 day devotional that will be released in October. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's good to, we love those 31 day devotionals. And I, like I said before, I really appreciate all of your writing, encourage people to check it out. So uh, check out these books at wherever you get your books. I recommend if you can go to biblicalcounselingbooks.com. They're a great uh, small ministry that has a great library of biblical counseling books as well. Um, Well, Dave, we have two minutes for two minute favorites. The last segment that we have on our podcast. Are you ready for this? Uh, Yeah, sure. All right, so pulling up the questions and starting our two-minute timer. What is your favorite food? Pizza. What's the favorite gift you've ever received? My wife. Favorite gift you've ever given? Uh, Pass. All right, favorite (laughs) word? Grace. Least favorite word? Oh, uh, I, I feel like I'm so predictable. Sin. Uh, favorite book of the Bible? Favorite book of the Bible? I've been studying Matthew. I've been embedded in Matthew a lot lately. All right. Favorite extra biblical book? Uh, I, I just finished Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, and so I'm reading through the classics right now. Uh, favorite color? Oh, goodness. I, do I have a favorite color? Blue. Favorite sport? 
Favorite sport would be baseball. Right. Favorite sports team? Philadelphia Eagles. Favorite Bible verse? I don't have a favorite. All right. Favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, I'm so predictable. Vanilla. All right. Favorite so candy? Bland. What's that? Favorite candy? Favorite candy would be uh, a, a toss-up between spree and and licorice. Red licorice. All right. Favorite quote? My favorite quote. Uh, oh, goodness. See, I'm not good at this. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing pretty well, actually. Okay. Um, I, I have a... I have a poem that is my favorite. Do you, do you want to hear it? Do I really have to quote well, a poem? You don't have to quote it. Uh, okay. If you had if it, any superpower, what superpower would you choose? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would choose to be able to allow my words to fit the situation every time. Oh, man. That's counseling superpower right there. All right. Well, that's two minutes. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for being with us today on 1514. We're going to hang out for a little bit for the after show. So BCC partners, you'll be able to check that out on our private Facebook page. And we're going to dig into one of these, uh, these defining moments. That's one of the first defining moments is when you discover that brokenness is broader than sin. It's a really great one for biblical counselors. So be sure to check out Dave's book. And if you're not a BCC partner and you want to find out about that, jump on our line on our website, check out the menu and find partner with us and find out more details there. So Dave, thanks for being with us on 1514. Curtis, thanks for inviting me to join you. Thank you for listening to this episode of 1514. If you'd like to know more about the ministry of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcounselingcoalition.org. You can also contact us at podcast at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to Carrie Felton, our podcast producer, who arranges and coordinates these interviews, and James Wills, our podcast engineer, who does the sound editing and makes these episodes sound so great. I thank you for being with us again and hope you can join us next time on 1514.